0: The Gospel this morning is from John chapter 7, uh, verse 25 to the end of the chapter. It's uh, quite long, so bear with me. Uh, this, we are back at the Feast of the Booths in Jerusalem. Um, and this is the sermon text. Some of the people of Jerusalem said Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the Lord's gospel.
1: Good morning grace and peace good morning visitors anyone here who's first time here it's good to see you and uh, if i don't get a chance to if i don't see you here hopefully you get a chance to come up and say hello to me after the service um let's pray father i thank you for this this passages uh, this morning Uh, i thank you for the entire book of john that was written that we may believe Lord, I ask that you would use my words this morning. Let them be your words. Let them stir our hearts. I ask that you would revive us. Lord, that you would open our eyes to the streams of life, the water of life that you offer. And Lord, help us to feel deeply the thirst we have for you and let us come and drink. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, the Narnia series, the book, The Silver Chair, is that the sixth book? Anyone? All right, I'll say it's the sixth book. Um, there, there's, if you're familiar with that book, the, the girl's name is Jill, and she has a friend named Eustace. And at the beginning of the, of the story, they are found in this one scene on, uh, on Aslan's Mountain. And one thing leads to another to cut to the chase here. Jill is showing off and they're on this cliff and she causes Eustace to fall over the cliff. And she is terrified. And then she sees a lion blowing a wind that seems to be blowing Eustace out into the distance where she can no longer see him. And it's left, you don't know what really happened to him. You have an idea, but in the story, she doesn't know, and she's devastated, and she finds herself in the woods, and she's exhausted, and she's dreadfully thirsty, and I'm going to read a little bit from this story. Lewis writes, but although the sight of water, well, what happens? Oh, let me, let me back up. As she, as she wakes up, she starts hearing a brook, she starts hearing running water, and then she comes upon a stream. Now I'll read. But although the sight of water made her feel 10 times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward to drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. If I run away, It'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she, could not, she, she couldn't be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty you may drink for a second she stared here she stared here and there wondering who had spoken then the voice said it again if you're thirsty you may drink it was deeper wilder and stronger a sort of heavy golden voice it did not make her any less frightened than she had been before but it made her frightened in a rather different way are you not thirsty said the lion I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I, if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. See, Jill knew she needed water. She felt the deep thirst within her entire body. You can almost, the way he words it, you can almost feel that thirst. Have you ever felt that thirst? Your mouth is so dry, it's so hot, you're sweaty, you just want a drink of water. And she gets to that stream, and she didn't like what she saw in the lion. There was great fear. And she did what we all do if we approach a fearful talking lion. She reasoned. She reasoned with herself to find another stream. She reasoned with the lion. And then she wrestled in her heart with the risks. And then, as we'll see later on, she responded. Today's passage is about Jesus calling out to all who are thirsty. He's calling out to you and to me and to everyone All those who don't even know Jesus, he's calling out to those who are thirsty to come to him. To come to him for what? For satisfaction, for peace with God, for eternal life, life that we would never have without him. And we're going to see that Jesus is the true source. He is the only source to quench a true thirst, a true thirst for eternal life because Jesus is that true source, that only source, we're going to see that we need also to reason rightly, to wrestle with the risk, and to respond boldly. To reason rightly, to wrestle with the risk, and to respond boldly. So the background of this, as as has been said, Dave talked about last week. Bruce talked about it a little bit this morning, is uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, or the Hebrew word Sukkoth. This was a feast that there were there were three pilgrimage feasts: Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, and uh, Pentecost. And what 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 this feast was? It was a seven day feast. Where people came, all the D- Jews came to, to Jerusalem. It's, it's commanded in Leviticus 23. That was read last week. But this is a seven-day feast. And it's important to know this because to know the context of, of, of what Jesus was doing here. And why this is important during this feast. Let me give you a little bit of what was happening on, on this feast. Every day, the seven-day feast, this is, this is one of the things that happened. On the seven days of the feast, a golden pitcher flagon, it's called, but it's a large pitcher, was filled with water from the pool of Siloam. You'll hear that pool in in chapter 9 of uh, John. And it was carried in a procession led by the high priest back to the temple. As the procession approached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, three blasts from the shofar, or the trumpet, connected with a joyful occasion, were sounded. While the pilgrims watched, the priests processed around the altar with this flagon full of water. The temple choir sang the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 through 118. And when the choir reached Psalm 118, every male pilgrim shook a lulav, which is a, a, a bunch of branches, willow and uh, myrtle twigs. They were tied together. I think there were actually four varieties and what these were done, and in the right hand were, were the branches, and while the left hand raised a piece of citrus fruit. This was all to recognize the good harvest that the Lord brought to the people of Jerusalem, of Israel. And all cried out, give thanks to the Lord three times. The water then was offered to God at the time of morning sacrifice, along with a daily drink offering of wine. The wine and the water were poured into their respective silver bowls and then poured out before the Lord. Moreover, these ceremonies of the Feast of Tabernacles, they were related to three things. The Lord's provision of water in the desert for the wilderness. A lot of these things go back to, a lot of these festivals go back to the wilderness, the, the Exodus. The Lord's provision of water in the desert. The Lord's pouring out the Spirit in the last days and symbolizing the coming of the Messianic age, the coming of the age of the Savior, the Messiah. In which a stream from the sacred rock would flow over the whole earth. So, you see the significance here of this festival and what Jesus says, what Jesus is doing there and what he is going to say. So, that gives you a little background. Now, what we're going to see is we, as, as he makes this invitation to us, that the, how the people are reasoning. Verse 25. Noah hit on this last week, um, but we'll start at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one's going to know where he came from. So this is their reasoning in in their hearts. This is their reasoning reasoning amongst one another. Now, you're going to see later on they're going to reason a little differently, but right now they're saying, we we know this guy, and this guy is not the Christ. We know where he comes from. And when the Christ comes, we're not going to know. Now, that might have been an idea that, that some of them had, that he's going to just appear But the truth is, they were not reasoning rightly. They they think they knew Jesus. They think they knew where he was from. But they're making some pretty shallow judgments, some pretty rash judgments. Remember, just before this passage, Jesus said, judge with right judgment. Noah hit on this last week as well. Not just by mere appearance. So the question is, who is Jesus? Jesus. Jesus' identity has been the source of grumblings throughout this passage, throughout the, throughout the gospel. The source of grumbling, arguments, and division throughout his ministry. If they would look and reason with the scriptures that were given, they would see, of course we know where the Messiah comes from. Micah 5.2 says he's going to come from Bethlehem. He's going to be coming from the city of David. And another crowd is going to say that later in this passage. But this is one of the things we have. And also, the reasoning used by the people of Jerusalem here is based on the fact that they know only the human side of Jesus. All they're dealing with here is the human side. Notice they say, we know this Jesus. We know who he is because we know where he grew up. We know his family. he's, he's, He's one of us. In verse 28, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me. And you know where I come from, which, by the way, that could also be a question, kind of like, you think you know me? You think you know where I come from? It could be taken two different ways. But I have not come to you on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you don't know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So what they do? They were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. This was not Jesus' time to be arrested, it was his time to be glorified, it was his time to to come out and declare who he was, what he was doing. But we see that some people were reasoning rightly, we see that some people believed in him, and how were they reasoning? They were looking to see what Jesus was doing, what was coming from Jesus, not just where did he come from, not just what what, what are the few things I know about him, but what was he doing? They were saying, when the Christ appears, is he going to do more signs than this man has done? We've seen his signs. The signs show that he has surely come from God. They were in the right direction. Can he truly be the Christ? Matthew Henry says that, that there is much ignorance of God, even with many that have a form of knowledge. In other words, that the, 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 the high-ups, the, the, Jew, the, the Jewish leaders... Who had this form of knowledge, this form of education, this high and mightiness about them, are being accused by Jesus as not even knowing who God is, not even knowing the Father. Matthew Henry says, and the true reason why people were rejecting Christ, and the true reason why people reject Christ is because they do not know God. You cannot just take Jesus in his humanity alone. That's never how he's been presented. It's never how he's presented himself. When you take him only in his humanity, he is a good man who went to the cross and maybe gave an example of love and sacrifice, but it does absolutely nothing for you and for me, except may give you a good example. But that provides no salvation. It provides no forgiveness for a sinful heart. It does nothing. You need the work of God. It is Christ who is man and God. So in reasoning here, there is a need to know God. There is a need to know the Father who sent the Son, And we know him not only through his creation, as Paul says, through his general revelation, what he has made, we know God, but then we are drawn to the things he has done through his prophets. We see the word of God. The word of God teaches us who God is and tells us about the prophet, as we read in in Deuteronomy 18. And also how the, the, the apostles in Acts 3 talked about who Jesus was. Yes, he is the prophet that Moses spoke of and all the other prophets were pointing to. Second, looking at the signs that Jesus did, reasoning and seeing just like Nicodemus did. Remember talking about this in chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, we know you're from God. We've reasoned, we've seen the signs that you've done and nobody could be doing them unless they have come from God. Please tell me more. We don't know the progress of, of, of Nicodemus' faith after that, but we have an idea because we see him mentioned here, defending Jesus, seeming to defend him. And we'll see him at the end also, at the end of this gospel. So we reason rightly, and end of the, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees now sent officers to arrest Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I'm going, you cannot come. it's, It's interesting. He told the people this, those who were following him, those who were against him. He's telling them, I'm going away. So he's announcing his death. But almost every commentator I read also agrees that this is the words of Jesus' urgency saying, you only have me for a short time. And there's going to come a time where you're going to seek me and you won't find me. D.A. Carson says, for some, there is this implicit threat in these words of Jesus. The time would come when some would look for him and die in their sins. Let me say this, Jesus doesn't owe us another chance to receive him. He doesn't owe you that. He doesn't owe me that. If you are offered the gospel and if you reject it, that may be your last time being offered. So we must reason rightly with the source of this living water. The giver of this life-giving water Reasoning and considering all that he has done, his signs, his teachings, and then his death and his resurrection, these things were written so that you may believe is what John says. The whole reason why these signs were recorded, the whole reason why these teachings were recorded was so that you and I may believe. Reasoning rightly means looking at these things looking at what is written by the apostles, looking at what's written by the prophets and receiving it and recognizing, yes, this is the Christ, the Son of God. Reason with the things that are written because they're sufficient for our belief. They're sufficient for our belief. It's enough to look at the word of God and believe on him. But only, not only should we reason rightly, but this, this scripture also gives us the need to wrestle with the risk. So, the last day of the feast, the great day, verse 37 says. What's the significance of the last great day of the feast? Well, I, I, I see some differences. Some say this could be the seventh day, some say this could be eight, the eighth day. The point is, this was a special day of the feast. This was a special day. It was most likely a day when after all of the festivities had ended and they were doing they were taking down the booths, they were resting, but they were still celebrating. And they were they, the the priests were giving the prayer for water. The prayer that God would supply. See, this is an agrarian society. The reason why, they, one one of the functions of this festival was a prayer for water, for God to supply water. They didn't just ship food in from all over the world. They had to rely on the Lord to provide rain in order that they may live. This festival was about praying to God for ample water that they may live through the year. And so this great day, at the end of the feast, after they've done the the drink offerings every day and sung the Hillel and celebrated and drank and ate and enjoyed life in these these booths, Jesus stands up and he cries out. You know, this is is Jesus crying out. Something is, is, um, I, I pulled this up earlier, so out of Proverbs. This is Proverbs chapter 2. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets she cries out. It's the same language here. Wisdom personified is Jesus himself. At the entrance of the city gates she speaks, how long, O simple ones, will you li- will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. As wisdom is crying out to all of us, Jesus is getting up that last day of the feast and crying out to everyone. If anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is speaking, you know, this is one of the most well-attended feasts because it was, it was when all of the, uh, uh, the work of harvest was done. During Passover and first fruits, there were still some farmers who couldn't come because they still had work to do. But this, this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, had the biggest crowd out of all three of the pilgrimage feasts. And he is calling out to anyone to everyone, to the priest, to the Gentiles, to the women, to the sick, to the infirm, to the poor, to the rich. Anyone, thirst, let him come to me and drink. That is the call not only then, it is the call today. It is the call to everyone. Everyone in this sanctuary, the call is to you. Anyone who is thirsty, come and drink. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. One commentator, Dale Bruner, says this, the confession of need is the only requirement of access to Jesus. Just confessing your need. You may think, what do I need to do to come to Jesus? Maybe you don't know what that looks like, what it means to even be a Christian. Well, to begin, it's simply following Jesus. Sometimes I think it's easier to call yourself a follower of Jesus than a Christian. Because it says a lot more. And the very, so how do you follow Jesus? Confess your need. He says, anyone who thirsts, anyone who has a need for me, who has a need for forgiveness, who feels the heavy laden, the... the, I had to bring this. The uh, well, that's last week's. We keep our liturgies around. Okay. First song this morning: Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Next verse: Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty. Third verse: Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost, ruined by the fall. Any of you relate to that? Any of you relate to being a sinner, to being poor, to being needy, weak, wounded, thirsty, weary, heavy laden, lost, ruined. That's for you. The call to come and drink is for you. And you know what else? This is what else this commentator said. Any, and I agree with this, any complicating or qualifying of Jesus, one simple condition for this sheer gift is a kind of sinning against the Holy Spirit and is to be avoided like the plague. In other words, you add anything to this qualification to come to Jesus, you're sinning against the Holy Spirit. You say you come to Jesus only after you get yourself together. You come to Jesus, but you quit this first. You come to Jesus, but before you do that, you start acting a little nicer, kinder, start giving more. That's not what Jesus is calling us to do. The hymn even says, if you tarry, if you wait, if you wait until you're better, you know what? You will never come at all. We just sung that. If you wait until you're better until you think you deserve it, until you think you have your, yourself together. Do that, you're never going to come because you can't make yourself better. You can't make yourself better. That's why you need the waters of life. That's why you need the river of life. And he says, as the scripture said, that most likely is, is, is referring, he says, as the scripture says, out of... Uh, um, I'm sorry, I got lost here. Oh, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, as the scripture said. That's not really referring to one specific scripture, but it's referring to a collection of the Old Testament prophecies found in Ezekiel 47, Isaiah 12, Revelation, New Testament, even speaks about in verse in chapter 21 and 22 about the temple. Verse, uh, chapter 21, he said to me, it's done, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Ezekiel has almost a whole chapter talking about the water flowing from the temple, flowing and keeping everything alive. All that touch the water is living. The fruit is for life and the leaves of the trees are for healing. It's the river of life going out of the temple. And you know, it's interesting because in chapter 2 of John, what does Christ call himself? He calls himself the temple. He is the new temple. And out of the temple of God, the living temple, the resurrected one is going to come rivers of living water that will flow not only to us but through us. Think about Acts 2, after they receive the Holy Spirit, after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. What is the first thing they do? They proclaim the gospel. Rivers of life are coming out of them. They're proclaiming the gospel. The rivers of life that were poured down on them are now pouring out of them as well. The Spirit is given to us to give us life and also that we may minister that life to others as well. So about this, I said to wrestle to wrestle with the risk. Well, how are we wrestling with this? Well, Think about this. Jesus was trouble. How many times it said twice in there that they were going to have him arrested? He was raising a lot of trouble. He was raising trouble all throughout this gospel. He's raising trouble. Jesus is not safe. And yet he is the only source of eternal life. And he's calling you and he's calling me to come to him and identify ourselves with him. To join ourselves with him. What are the risks? What are the risks for the people at that, at that festival? Well, maybe some, some of the risks, the priests going around with the flagons of water and wine, leading the procession, carrying it around the temple, and pouring it out for the people to see. The choir singing the Hillel would have to get down from the temple and come to Jesus. They would have to come down to leave their high and mighty place, to leave their powerful position and come to the Savior. I think that's why you see so much, a little bit of tension with Nicodemus and the others. Because Nicodemus may have been very close to coming to Jesus. To identify with him in the midst of all the Jewish leaders and all of the people is risky. And yet we have to wrestle with that risk because he is the only one. He's the only source and he's calling calling the people to come to him. Okay, I want to. I've reasoned. He is the Christ, but what does it mean for me to actually identify with him? That's risky. But what you're left with after you wrestle with the risk, you're left with having a response. You have to have a response. You're either going to turn away or you're going to come to him, but there's going to be a response. What happened here in this passage, verse 40? When they heard these words, some of the people said, wow, this really is the prophet. Some were convinced. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Is not the scripture said the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? Now, see that crowd is mentioning Bethlehem now. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officer said to the chief priests and Pharisees, why didn't you bring him in? The officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. It kind of sounds like at the end of chapter 6, doesn't it? There was a big division. And the officers sound, there's some relation there to to what Peter said. Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. In some ways, no no one speaks like you. You have words of eternal life. And so what you have is the the Pharisees and the religious leaders now ridiculing the crowd. This crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. Do you see the risk of following Jesus? Now you're shunned by the leaders, the ones in power. Life is gonna be tough. Why is there division? Why is there division every time Jesus speaks, every time Jesus does something? Because not all are willing to confess their bare need. Not all are willing to confess their soul's greatest desire, their soul's greatest need. They're not willing to take off the powerful robes. They're not willing to expose who they really are to the Christ. Not all are willing to step down from their position their high morality, their tradition-keeping, their power, because when they do, they're going to be getting in line with the sick. They're going to be getting in line with the poor. They're going to be getting in line with the destitute. They're going to be getting in line with with the Greeks, with the women, with all who have come to that feast. No longer are they the leaders up front. Now they're getting in line with everybody else to come to the only source. It's risky. It's risky. After Jill heard the lion say that there was no other stream, she wrestled. She wrestled with the fact that there was this lion that seemed fearful, unsafe, but different. And she had a choice to make. She wrestled with it and she had to respond. She had to drink or die. The book goes on, and says, it never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream. She knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. When you finally reasoned your way, reasoned rightly with the the word of God and with the signs of the Messiah, and you wrestle with the risk of coming to him, then you're left with one thing to do, and that's respond. What's your response? What is your response to the call of Christ that says, come to me. All who thirst, anyone who thirsts, come to me. Make no mistake, it may feel like the worst thing you've ever had to do, really. It may be embarrassing. It may be humiliating. You may lose friends. You may lose family members. You may get beat up. Your life may go in a completely different direction. It may be good, but it may be very difficult. Coming to Jesus is not easy. Coming to Jesus, who is not safe, Coming to him, though, with all of your sins and recognizing he is the only source of life. He's all you have. He's the only choice. It may be the worst thing you've ever done or the hardest thing you've ever done, but you won't thirst. You'll have peace with God that goes beyond all understanding because you have approached the Son of God just as you are. Knelt and drank your fill. You know why Jill went to the stream finally? Because she was thirsty. Because she knew her thirst. She felt her thirst more than ever before. May the God of life give us hearts to feel the true thirst of our soul. Help us to reason rightly with who he is and to wrestle our way and respond to our Lord, drinking from the satisfying, thirst-quenching stream of living water that's never going to run dry. May we feel that thirst and may we drink deeply. Pray with me. Jesus, help us to drink from you, Lord. Help us to come to you. May we feel the thirst. And may you quench that thirst in your name, amen.